This is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. CIA, why the UK was cut out of the American interrogation report. Al-Qaeda tells ISIS to stop the beheadings. Will they take any notice? Why a barrel of oil is Putin's biggest enemy and the film about the commando who refused to die. They're going to get lucky sooner, sooner or later. You know, it is just literally not if, but when. Detainees were subjected to the most aggressive techniques immediately, stripped naked, diapered, physically struck, and put in various painful stress positions for long periods of time. They were deprived of sleep for days, usually standing or in stress positions, at times with their hands tied together over their heads, chained to the ceiling. There's never a, a perfect time to release a report like this. But it was important for us, I think, to recognize that uh, part of what sets us apart is when we do something wrong, we acknowledge it. Torture is wrong. Those of us who want to see a safer, more secure world, who want to see this extremism defeated, we won't succeed if we lose our moral authority. Certainly on the rendition flight, some went through Prestwick in Scotland. There are indications that maybe the base in the Indian Ocean, Diego Garcia, was involved in some ways. And certainly there were connections between MI6 and the CIA. Britain isn't clean on this. This was an American endeavour. But we still know very little about what Britain did. Well, in order, that was Senator Dianne Feinstein, President Obama, David Cameron and Professor Paul Rogers all talking about the US Senate report on the CIA which condemned its use of interrogation techniques post 9-11. Well, I'm joined today by Middle East academic Professor Rosemary Hollis from City University and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Christopher, Paul Rogers there saying we don't know what Britain's involvement is for sure but suggesting several things. Was Britain involved? Yes. Um, I mean, was involved in, involved quite a lot. Um, for example, uh, people were flown out of this country or through the country and then uh, some of the British airports were used and we knew what was going on with the CIA moving people around to different detention centres, etc. They flew them out of Presswick, Inverness, Wick and Aberdeen. Sometimes the flights were five flights going into two of those airports and three into another uh, airport and one into Wick. Um, we know we were involved in getting out from this country three particular people, Binyam Mohammed, who was taken to Guantanamo, we know that uh, in 2004 that uh, Abdul Hakim Balhaj and Sami Al Sadi uh, were taken out to Libya where they were tortured uh, and beaten up and their families were taken out there. So we are definitely involved. Now the other thing that's going to happen is that all this is coming out. This report that we're talking about is about 500 pages. Not mentioned uh, about Britain, though, no, is it? No, but that's the thing they call reduction. You know, they just put the black, black pencil in the But the important thing is the main report is something like 6,700 pages. And in that report, 
are all the incidents where the CIA, in particular, worked with other countries. I mean, Poland, for example, uh, the, the CIA bought a, an interrogation centre in there. The, the Polish Prime Minister said to the CIA and to the, British, uh, the American government, take it out. Mm. They refused to do so. Professor Rosemary Hollis, hello. Um, uh, we heard there President Obama saying when we do something wrong, you know, they admit it. Ten years later, though, um, what about Britain? Do you think this is all going to be coming out in the open? Will there be inquiries? Will we hear more? Well, we're still waiting for the Iraq inquiry three years on from when that was that, that did go through my mind, actually, when I heard people <laughs> talking about that, yes. Indeed, and I think in on reflection, it's true, as Chris said, that we were pretty aware at the time that the British were facilitating American operations in the sense that they could use British airports to do some of the transport of these people that they were disappearing or rendering or imprisoning but also after the invasion of Libya or at least the military operation to help the Libyans overthrow the Gaddafi regime more documents were found which implicated the British in handing over Libyan uh, nationals to the Gaddafi regime who subsequently tortured them and they've tried to take their case to court and what we get is a wall of silence from the British until something is extracted from them and I don't see them volunteering to come clean on the extent, the British authorities, on the extent of British involvement, but I do anticipate that they will have to own up to some of it. Go around the, the, the sort of intelligence bazaars around Whitehall and across the river, and you hear people talking about Abdel Hakim uh, Belhaj and Sami al Saadi. These are the guys that were uh, taken out with our help to Libya. They will also and deceived into thinking they were going to get some kind of asylum or safe passage to Britain in order to kidnap them. That's right. And, and their families, that's why their families went as well. And they were beaten up to the width of their life. Now, what was interesting, when they said, look, we, we, we've got to go to a trial on this, what did the British government say? We can't tell you anything because it involves MI5, it involves MI6, and most importantly, it involves our relationship with the intelligence community. In, in Washington, and there was the sticking point. But I will promise you, from what I talked to people in Washington over the past two days, they are saying that 6,700-page top-secret report, sort of President's eyes only almost, that's going to start leaking out. And the reason it's going to start leaking out is the CIA reckoned the 500-pager that's gone out is a bunch of lies. Let's talk about interrogation itself, because I understand this report has said that as a result of these methods, nothing really useful transpired. Does interrogation ever work, Christopher? It does on certain levels. There are three forms of interrogation. There's tactical interrogation. That means what, what's happening locally and immediately. Especially on a battlefield, you pick some guy up, you say, what regiment are you? You know who they're for, who the enemy is around, what's going to happen next in the next 30 minutes, an hour. There's theatre uh, interrogation, and that means you're looking at a bigger picture. You're looking at a picture that's going over miles. And there's strategic intelligence, uh, intelligence and that says, what sort of training you've been doing for the past six months? If you can tell us that, we probably get an idea of what your intentions are as well as your capabilities. Then you start getting into personalities. Now, where this does possibly work is the way, certainly the British system of interrogation, is what they do. They take somebody in, they look at what they've got, they've got four types of personalities, they've got trained, per, trained interrogators onto this, only trained interrogators, quite often trained interrogator interpreters as well. 
And it's a system that started in the 1960s down at Ashford when the Intelligence Corps was there. And they produced this. It was successful. It's also the system that was bullied into Northern Ireland. The problem with the Americans, they put two guys commercially in charge of the interrog- advanced interrogation techniques. Neither of them were trained interrogation mm. interrogators. They were academics. And that's where it started to foul up. Let's move on now, because David Cameron has spoken of Britain's moral authority. But what use are morals if your enemies are involved in beheading their captives? This week, Al-Qaeda has publicly banned the beheading of prisoners, issuing a 43-minute interview with a senior field commander to make its disapproval clear. Professor Hollis, why have they done this and why now? Well, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State are rivals. Islamic State grew out of Al-Qaeda in Iraq and then built its strength inside Syria where you had a number of different militant organizations opposing the Assad regime and Islamic State made its name by being more extreme with a more extreme and exclusivist Islamist platform than any of the others, including Al-Qaeda. And this is an attempt by Al-Qaeda to regain the support it lost to Islamic State. Islamic State's great success, which Al-Qaeda has never matched, is the capture of extensive territory in Iraq and Syria, the capture of assets like oil installations that generate money, and the capture of an awful lot of heavy armour. So they're conducting themselves almost like a state, which Al-Qaeda has never succeeded in doing. The fight back involves uh, a challenge on the ideological ground that Islamic State is too brutal to other Muslims. But in the history of Al-Qaeda, they have certainly had no trouble killing other Muslims. And beheading beheading uh, as well, captives in the past. Indeed. But this in the... Well, we know that beheadings take place in some of the states that are considered quite respectable and legitimate. Mm. So beheadings are an issue amongst these different rivals for power in Iraq and Syria at the moment. And it is about the followings of both of them and what wins support amongst the the, the Muslim masses on a broader geographic scale. Do you think it's going to make any difference? I think it's another indication that the relationships between these Islamist organizations goes up and down. You've had an amalgamation of what were previously rivals, the Nusra Front and Islamic State in Syria. They're joining forces in the face of American aerial bombardment Mm. in order to survive together. And you could see the same thing happen with Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, depending on how things go with the counter-operation mounted by the US, Iran and the Gulf states. Christopher? It's a fascinating side of this historically, isn't there, Rosie? And that is, Al-Qaeda, like that was the first of that sort of thing that we began to understand in the West. And Al-Qaeda was, was, and to some extent, is a sort of a movement, is a concept. And you can be an offshoot, not of Al-Qaeda, but whatever your protest was, which you then sort of join into Al-Qaeda, you become an associate and affiliate of it. When you get to Islamic State, you have got a group which are dis- they're dissatisfied, they have rejected the sort of... The, 
virtually easygoing as they would see it from al-Qaeda. They've got specific, specific objections and objectives. And the indifference is, is that sort of amorphous state that's sort of not quite sure what it was, except it was Osama bin Laden, which was al-Qaeda. And now you've got something which says, we are ruthless. This is how we do it. We are Sunnis. We will bring people to us because we're doing what nobody else has done. How do you see this development? That that is uh, the distinguishing characteristic of the leaders of this movement, that nothing is too uh, ghastly, uh, too cruel, too brutal for them to contemplate. However, it has a kind of momentum of its own which pushes them to greater and greater extremes, and that's something we ought to worry about. Uh, One sees it in the brutalization and brutalized... Uh, effects of that on groups fighting internal wars for example in sub-Saharan Africa, in in the um, Central African Republic when you've got child soldiers the way they are recruited is by making them do something truly brutal to their friends and family and then they are recruited into this horror machine. So just briefly Professor Hollis, how do you see this developing now that we've had this statement by Al-Qaeda, what do you think the effects might be? Well, as I say, it's a propaganda war between these two at the moment, and that's what it's about. And it would be a mistake to think that the brutality and the Islamism of Islamic State make them a medieval organization. They are super modern in their manipulation of the media and social media and videos. And Al-Qaeda is probably not going to be a match for that. Professor Rosemary Hollis, thank you very much for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the two questions the Chief of the Defence Staff must answer next week. The Ministry of Defence has revealed it had to call in help from NATO allies after a periscope, believed to have been from a foreign submarine, was sighted off the west coast of Scotland. So, was it a Russian sub? BFBS reporter Charlotte Cross has spoken to Peter Roberts, Senior Research Fellow for Sea Power and Maritime Studies at the Royal United Services Institute. Yeah, I think Russia is probing. It's probing all over the place. It's um, in the uh, Swedish waters... Uh, it's pushing to Norwegian waters, it's showing its muscle in the uh, Black Sea and in the Mediterranean, it's conducting more activities in the Pacific, and of course it regards the Atlantic as its backyard and is very concerned about um, uh, external operators in the Arctic. So this very much is uh, the Russian military uh, re-energising their seaborne and airborne activities. They're doing it in line with a national strategy which looks at this revanchism of pushing out into the Atlantic and, and that's what they're doing. So we shouldn't be surprised by this activity. We should have been expecting this. Yeah, it is entirely predictable. You can follow the pattern of Russian submarine deployments down through the Atlantic, back through the Cold War. And this is one of their standard routes they follow, uh, come out from their northern fleet bases, sail down the Norwegian Sea and into British waters through the GRUK gap, the Greenland, Iceland, UK uh, island chain, and then conduct uh, some short surveillance operations off the coast of, uh, uh, of Scotland, before then sauntering across the Mediterranean uh, and then out into the Atlantic across to the uh, seaboard of the United States to have a look at uh, their operations and then returning home. It's a standard Russian deployment and the sighting of this periscope would fit exactly uh, within their pattern of operating. How worried do you think we should be? 
I'm not sure that we should be worried uh, about the singular acts. Uh, I think the greater concern is the pattern uh, and this increasing pace and scale of uh, Russian remilitarization. Um, Russia at the moment uh, may well perceive itself to be encircled and threatened by NATO, this constant push of NATO nations right up to its border um, outside of the boundary that it previously had is making Russians distinctly uncomfortable and it feels it doesn't have much out there except to militarise uh, any reaction to it um, and to be honest you know future cuts in British defence expenditure, the recent cuts in British defence expenditure are all signals to Russia that actually Europe doesn't really care about the military side of the solutions, uh, which certainly gives Putin the upper hand in any kind of action he takes. And speaking of cuts, defence experts have said it's embarrassing that the UK no longer possesses a maritime patrol capability. Do you agree with that? You can look at the maritime patrol aircraft debate for the UK in, in two ways. Um, why else would we be a part of NATO if we can't call on them to come and assist us? Much like we did for the French, their recent operations this year in Africa, we provided them with specialist C4I star support, uh, with um, specialist radar aircraft and strategic lift capability. And in exchange, they're providing us with some Atlantic II a maritime patrol aircraft to assist our needs. On the other hand, um, one might well look at this through the eyes of the UK being an exceptionally large um, uh, military power in the world uh, by comparison with other peer states it's highly unusual that we don't possess a maritime patrol capability ourselves and we are also an island aren't we how much of a capability gap do you think it leaves it's it's a huge capability gap um, and the mitigation that was put in place after the demise of the Nimrod program was woefully inadequate uh, there is nothing that can replace it uh, except another maritime patrol aircraft. The technology doesn't exist to rely on uh, swarms of drones or underwater cabling to provide you anything like a substitute. And so really, Britain has to get back into this. And there will be no surprise that at the next Defence Review, a maritime patrol aircraft programme will be announced. What format takes is a different question. That was Peter Roberts from the Royal United Services Institute speaking to Charlotte Cross. So, Christopher, what do you think? Is Russia on the move? It's, it's just been the same since 1954 with the formation of Warsaw Pact. They've been doing this all the time. It's where you have quick reaction alerts up at Lucas and places like this, where you mm. have uh, ships looking for this. I'll tell you something else which is, which is getting interesting now really getting interesting, is that uh, we, we're talking about these stories largely because they're popping up, and they've always popped up, but because we have this thing about Putin at the moment, yeah? Now, I was in a bar last night, <laughs> as it happens. A bar... Kel Surprise. Yes. I was in a bar in Dublin, and there's a man called Carl uh, Mackay, who is a, one of these dark oil brokers. He buys millions of barrels before anybody's looking, that sort of thing. He was saying that the price of oil, which most people know is going down at the moment... If it hits $55, in his phrase, Putin starts to slide under the table because his economic base is completely shattered and it can't recover for a long time. Now, that would be interesting, isn't it? And that is the interesting side of what we've got to start looking for, and that is Putin's future and link it to the oil price. Elsewhere now, the World Health Organization says the Ebola virus is still running ahead of efforts to contain it. Earlier, I spoke to Royal Marine Major Simon Reeves. He's the UK media military advisor for Sierra Leone, and I spoke to him in Freetown. I asked him how many British military personnel were currently deployed there. There's around uh, 750. Um, the 
the, the first people that were out here were the Royal Engineers, um, and they they were the ones who have been um, critical in designing and constructing these these six treatment centres. Um, they came out late August, um, started designing them, and then, I mean, it's not like there's uh, you know three or four hundred engineers. There's only you know, seventy or eighty came out, but uh, they were using uh, local contractors and they were working with the, um, the local Sierra Leone Armed Force as well here to to build those centres. We've also got um, a number of medics who ha- actually have just flown home five medical regiment who are based in Catterick. They were conducting healthcare worker training. Um, so they were teaching a three-day courses for um, people who wanted to volunteer to be healthcare workers, local Sierra Leoneans, the, the armed forces, to be to, uh, use the PPE, how to don, don and doff it, they call it, put it on and take it off, um, and how to work in an Ebola ward where you have a green and a red zone, the green being, let's say, the safe zone, the red zone being where the patients are. So, and you know, how to get in and out of that and in and out of PPE. And how many Ebola patients have been treated and how many as a result of the British involvement? Um, I can't really go into details on on um, patient numbers, but what I can tell you is, you know, as as the, uh, the beds become available, the more people will be coming in um, into those centres because, as you, as you rightly say, you know, the, the virus is still... Uh, prevalent out here and it's still rising cases are still rising so uh, you know, I, don't re- I don't really want to go into numbers um, on, on how many we are treating because this, this isn't just about us this is about the whole country this is about you know the government um, the republic, the, the armed forces in Australia, as I said and the people it's, it's one big joint effort Christopher Major Reeve, there's a thought just supposing you've got around, let's say around about 700 doesn't matter how accurate the figure is of uh, British forces either attached or passing through there. It's a big operation. How many people do you reckon is needed to support that, like people training to go out, people uh, probably in the next batch doing other things in the UK? Must must be run into a couple of thousand. Uh, I don't think the numbers are going to go much above um, 800, 800 around the maximum we've had here. But at the moment... um, as I said, five medical regiments have returned because they've done. They've trained their healthcare workers. They trained over four thousand healthcare workers. The engineers are at the end of their task. Um, they've built the treatment units. Um, they have just got a few um, what, what we call snagging, which is where we've handed over to the NGOs. There might be a couple of issues, a bit of wiring, um, maybe something doesn't work. But they just make sure that everything's works. The NGOs are happy, and then they, they um, <coughs> excuse me, once they uh, once they finish those tasks and you know they'll be returning to the uk however uh, we've got guys who are working in the 12 bed unit um, because of their exposure to um evd patients they will be swapping over the sort of i think it's the 60 day point so we have more people coming into country they're being trained at york as we speak they will be coming into country um and then the guys that have been there for the last 60 days will be um moving back moving back to the uk uh, from there, so yeah, there, I mean, you're right. There is a there is a bigger effort than just the 800 people here. You've always got to have people being worked up to come into theatre, but uh, the numbers won't drop. Um, you know, much below where they are now. So as people go out, there'll be people coming in. That was Major Simon Reeve speaking to me from Sierra Leone. This is BFBS. Sit rep. 
The remarkable story of a Royal Marine who survived an IED in Afghanistan has been told in a new film. Corporal Paul Weiss, or Weissy as he's known, had 114 significant wounds over his body. More than 300 pieces of shrapnel and stones had to be taken out of his torso and he was left with a heart condition, paralysis down his left side and is deaf in one ear. Let's hear some of the film. This extract starts in Afghanistan where Paul was interviewed before he was injured. This area here, everyone knows, it's, it's ID central. There's, 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 the ground is absolutely riddled with them. It's well drilled and well trained as you can be. Your luck's going to run out sooner or later, and then luck does play a big part in it as well. Eventually, we are going to set patterns, and, and sure as sh- they're going to get lucky sooner, sooner or later. You know, and it's just literally not if, but when. Prophetic words. One week later, Vicey, on a routine patrol, was blown up by an IED, a massive fragmentation line. I just remember just being red hot, like flying through the air, just on fire sort of thing. Just the heat was a big thing that hit me first of all. I shot like an arrow in, into the wall. My helmet hit the, hit the wall, hit my head snapped back, and I think that's what broke my neck. Well, that was Vicey, and the other voice you heard was the filmmaker Chris Terrell, who joins us now. Hello, Chris. Um, a lot of people got seriously wounded in Afghanistan. What makes Paul Vice different? Well, I mean, Paul, Paul's an old friend of mine. I met him out on the front line uh, three years ago, just before he was blown up, and have stayed, stayed pals with him ever since. Um, I think Paul would be the first to say he's not that different. You know, our soldiers... Uh, our Marines, uh, those that got injured, um, I think all of them, most of them, have shown huge courage in coming to terms with those injuries and fought through. Um, Paul is just somebody who, because I happen to know him, I followed through and was very privileged and very honoured to be at his side much of the way through this recuperation, and it's such an inspiring story. And I think that that's the point, really. You know, we, we, we mustn't continue to see these injured boys, um, these injured young men, uh, as burdens on the community. The, the, these guys have got something really special to give, both in terms of their courage, their determination uh, to, to win through. Mm. And uh, they're, they're actually a resource, and that's how I see Paul. And, and, and in this film, you actually show him coping, coming to terms with it, also going to the Invictus Games and, and, mm. uh, and competing there, getting a gold, but also mm. electing to have an amputation. You follow the whole process through. Um, he's very positive, though, and inspirational, as you said yourself. For every one of those, how many people, I don't know, just don't cope with their injury and, and don't give such a positive in, image of, of, of what, how well, you cope? I, I don't know because I, have, I, you know, I, 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 I need to have met everybody who'd been injured and sadly there are so many. Um, again, let's look at Paul as a sort of, um, as an example, as, as a case study if you like. He went through some very dark times. He's the first to admit it. He does so on the film. Um, he, he went to a very dark place, understandably. He was very, very badly injured. He, he, he technically died twice on the evacuating helicopter and has been left with you know, life-changing injuries. But by, by, by virtue of his training, um, of the ethos that the Royal Marines instilled into him, by virtue of his wife Tessa, by virtue of his four children and a supporting family, he's, he's, he's fought back. And, you know, I, th- I think there are many 
such people who 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 will eventually come through that through through the dark place and into 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 a more hopeful prospect a more hopeful life and i think that's um, you know I, I like to think that uh, vice is fairly typical therefore of of others but you know my goodness me i i thank god i wasn't i wasn't injured myself i haven't had to deal with these these sorts of challenges myself but i've got many friends vicey just being mm. one um who who have contended with these with this um the reality of of being injured and i think i think what what i also think is that this film which is uh, it, it takes us into dark places because it's above all there's I a lot like of humor in it as well there are moments as, that made me well, laugh out loud as well <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, that's the point. I think, again, military humour, certainly Royal Marines humour that I know. I mean, they have a bangiversary, um, don't they, where they get together really, yeah. on the anniversary well, of, what, of what happened. Yeah, and that's, and that's really interesting because it, it's the anniversary of the day they were blown up. Vicey and the, his, his four or five mates were blown up with him. And it's not an anniversary of the day they were blown up. It's the anniversary, significantly, of the day they survived. Mm. And that's the point. They're not looking at it negatively, they're looking at it positively. All right, Chris Terrell, thank you very much for your time. And you can see the commando who refused to die this Friday at 9 o'clock on Forces TV. Next week, the Chief of the Defence Staff gives his annual lecture on the state of British defence. It's a keynote speech for the head of all British forces. Christopher, the headline's obvious. Post-Afghanistan, West Africa, deployment, airstrikes in the Middle East. You think there may be two further questions that will come up? Yeah, one one involves Trident and the other involves policy. When the last debate came on Trident, there was a man called Mike Quinlan who produced a report, do we actually want it? It's probably time for another Quinlan-type report. And the other thing, does the CDS actually know what the British government want the forces to do for them in the next 20 years? You'll be there, will you? I will be there. I'll report back next week, please. And that's all we have time for this week. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. We're back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.